Welcome to the After Hell podcast for October 2006. This is Joe Medina, creator of the After Hell series. This year's World Horror Convention was held in San Francisco on the weekend of May 14th. On Sunday the 14th, my co-producer Jamie Lawson and I led a panel called The Sounds of Horror. For this installment, we bring you that panel. About five months late. Author Simon Wood and a variety of horror fans joined our discussion. Listen to The Sounds of Horror. Recorded May 14th, 2006. Welcome everyone to Sounds of Horror, our panel about the golden age of radio and the modern age. My name is Joe Medina. I am the producer and creator of a new radio series called After Hell, and I'll be moderating today. With me here, author and columnist, Simon Wood. And right here is Jamie Lawson, my wife and co-producer. And I'd like to start with first impressions. This is open to anybody. I'd like to talk about your first memorable encounters with radio horror. Art Jobler did a recreation of some of his Lights Out radio that they put on a Capitol record in the 60s that mm-hmm. was offered through Famous Monsters of Filmland uh, called Drop Dead and Exercise in Horror. <laughs> and the one that I really remember was the one of, that ended the first side of the record called The Dark. The shadows that were slimy that turned people inside out and the way he used oh, the yeah. sound effects, it was just like rubber gloves, but it was just perfect and it would it could still raise my hackles when I listened to it in the dark. For what it's worth, I, I remember that uh, The Simpsons gave, uh, gave a nod to that story uh, in one of their uh, Tree Houses of Horror Halloween shows. Where at the end, all of a sudden, a fog comes in and the whole Simpsons cast gets turned inside out. <laughs> yeah. Um, I got an unusual one, I think. It's not, I, want, I suppose it wasn't horror, but it, it just creeped me out when I was little. And that was um, the 50s recording of Sparky's Magic Piano. And it was just, it, it used to be played on a Saturday morning. There was, um, on Radio 1 in England, there was... Every morning it was like Ed Stewart's thing, and it was like it was like the crossover show for the parents and the kids on the Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. And he used to play different things, but one thing he used to play was like segments of Sparky's Magic Piano. And I just found Sparky so scary. It was that creepy sort of like um, like Wobblertron voice they sort of gave it. Um, that was probably my earliest sort of memory of actually being spooked out by radio. Okay. Although I listened to things like Man in Black and things like that on. BBC, but that was probably the first one. I suppose it is speculative fiction being a talking piano. <laughs> um, Jamie? I go back, I guess, to fairly vague memories of the CBS Radio Mystery Theater back in the, the mid-70s. It was one of the few the few new venues for, for radio drama of any kind that was still out there. I remember, you know, vaguely hearing a few of those late at night when I really should have been asleep, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay, for those just joining us, we're talking about the sounds of horror, and in particular, uh, sort of doing this more as a support group than an actual panel. Um, and uh, the question flying around right now is uh, your earliest memories of radio horror. When I was a kid, I started to get really into comics and Batman and Spider-Man and whatnot. And 
um, found uh, story records. Uh, the label was Power Records, if, if anybody might, might be familiar with those. And they did an adaptation of an older Spider-Man story from the early, early 70s, which probably would have been shortly after the pressing of that particular album. Uh, it was called The Mark of the Man-Wolf. It was their take on the werewolf story. So uh, anybody else here uh, you know, have any memories of uh, Radio Horror they'd like to share? You can remain anonymous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was, uh, I guess it was reading in a little adaptation of you know, these LP records with uh, adaptations of uh, Edgar Allan Poe stories. Mm-hmm. I think Basil Rathbone read a bunch back in the 60s, I think. Um, those were on LP and tape. Um, and they, they st- they're still around, actually, of him reading Edgar Allan Poe and things. Uh, yeah. In the UK, I think they had uh, Christopher Lee did virtually all the short stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. The BBC, by the way, if you go to bbc.co.uk, uh, they are, you can listen to many of their radio programs. They have a feature called Listen Again. Uh, BBC Radio 7 is a, uh, uh, I think it's a digital and internet only station. Uh, and they replay a lot of uh, sci-fi horror stuff uh, that was done on the other BBC channels. It's a good resource to have a look at. Yeah, and that's basically where you find a, a lot of where you know radio still being used on a regular basis. I mean, you know, you've got Man in Black, which probably dates back about 50 years, which had Valentine Dahl. If you've ever seen the original version of the Haunting of Hill House, he was like the creepy gatekeeper who let him into the house. And he was like the voice, and he's got a very good, you know, one of those resounding sort of like radio voices. And he would just introduce a story in a similar sort of fashion to the way um, Twilight Zone worked, right. where like Rod Serling would come in and, and give you that little prologue before you get into the story. So that's what he would do, and you'd have like an original story. Then they revived it back in the 80s and had a changeover in voice when uh, Valentine Dark died but then they still BBC is still either making sci-fi or horror even and a lot of mystery is still being redone on a regular basis they just had a series a couple of weeks ago called Fresh Blood and for a week they did these uh, I think they were 15 or 30 minutes yeah. uh, uh, radio plays by new authors so you know the horror genre yeah they did have a pitch thing out that you could actually send your own stories in not so long ago um, about, I think about 18 months ago there was asking for the tales to go into for that. Very much alive and well in the UK. Yeah. Much more so than the US. And I think you can actually buy them. I mean, I, that's what I do is end up buying the, the, the CDs from the UK and get them shipped over and things like that. Because um, they've done uh, a number of Stephen King versions. They've done uh, Secret Garden, Secret Window, which is actually, I thought it was better than the movie that came out. They did it around the same time. They did a different adaptation of the, of the story. And uh, Pet Cemetery. They did. The only thing I'd really like them to to put onto disc or or something is um, they did Salem's Lot. And they did, that was a ten hour mm-hmm. uh, adaptation. You know, um, it was like one hour each week, and that you know that'd be you know real something to get because that was pretty close to the book. They try to keep pretty faithful. I love to hear that. Sometime um, that kind of touches on something that's that's been concerning me for a while personally. Um, and not just because I, I produce this stuff. That for some reason or another, uh, radio drama in general has been alive and well just about everybody except here in the U.S. 
um, the BBC has has been keeping the faith pretty steadily ever since uh, the first crystal radio set back in back in the early 1900s. Um, and uh, CBC Radio has been has been continuing. They've, they've never really stopped. Uh, for um, a few years in early 19, in the early 1980s, they had a horror series called Nightfall, um, which quickly became notorious. Uh, they kind of got into some of the uh, you know very clever sound effects and touches of gore that Arch Obler you know, kind of you know, opened the door to, uh, except. Uh, they they decided to get really in your face about it. There was one particular story called um, the repossession, where um, a character uh, is basically haunted by his unborn twin brother. At the very end of the story, uh, he is forced to rip out his own heart, and there are all these you know six squelching sounds, and you hear him grunting and groaning in pain, and going, "No, I don't want to do this," and. You know, and then finally, once the heart goes free, you hear this big splash, and it sounds like a hose exploded. I, I still haven't had the uh, had the guts to listen to that. Was that was so? Did that come out on um, on normal radio sort of thing, or was that like an NPR thing? Um, it's it started uh, in Canada on oh, CBC. Well, I, thought, I thought it was Canadian. Yeah, okay. and um, and uh, for for a while, it was syndicated through a lot of NPR stations until they started getting complaints about that one story. <laughs> And it kind of sort of disappeared here and there until it finally uh, died out for good and all, like around 86, 85. Yeah, but for the most part, the only real uh, places uh, that you could find uh, radio drama are basically the books on tape market. Those really took off during the 90s, and like you were saying before, uh, with uh, the BBC making then tapes and, and, and eventually CDs of a lot of really great BBC dramas. And one thing I'm kind of wondering about is why, why isn't it catching on in the United States? It's something I've been wondering about myself for a long time. It's the only thing I've been able to, to fathom is that there's such an emphasis on the visual with television and, um, and film. Mm -hmm. And when in you know, the, the middle 50s, television became so quickly ubiquitous that it, radio just got left by the wayside and with a very few exceptions never yeah. really never really caught on again seems I'd be I would be interested in hearing what anyone else thinks about why that happened um, I, don't, I don't know because I mean for me it's like I have sort of grown up with radio um, all the time and it may have something to do with having slightly older parents um, but there's that thing of you can't watch television and do something else whereas you can listen to the radio or a tape or whatever and do something else but the, my main thing is I've never I don't, I don't know what it is because I obviously haven't been here long enough to, to understand it but it's just that the radio stations are so small there's not like uh, a central backbone of like a national radio system that could support something like doing um, drama productions I mean if you just look around the Bay Area you know you've got several 
radio stations, but you do feel that they've literally just got the one box of records. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't matter what DJ they got, is that they're all sharing from the same bucket. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be wherever I go, that doesn't seem to be big independent stations and, and those like national stations that can carry the sort of like investment you'd have to put into um, carrying off a radio drama. Mm-hmm. There's just a, a lot of radio now, aside from the community stations, it's um, they're owned by a relatively small number of very big corporations, and a lot of it's become very cookie cutter. Also, you sort of get into the thing that the main drive for radio station is advertising, not music or entertainment, because some of the radio stations around here are like um, are like campaigning because they're under threat of conversion to another format, mm-hmm. not because of they're bad stations or anything like that. But you're getting into the argument of well, more advertising revenue can be generated by having this type of music, this type of focus. And, you know, I think that's where, you know, the major drive is going to be. Yeah, and with so many people trying to figure out what these demographic numbers are supposed to mean, depending on what they want them to mean. But that's just my cynical point of view, so there you are. But what he's saying is very true because I've been in San Francisco long enough to see all the rock cha- stations transformed into country western, mm-hmm. and now they've gotten rid of the country western, and it's on to the yeah. next demographic strictly for advertising. The other thing is that we had one radio station that was at least playing Stan Freeberg's when radio was young, yeah. and that at least gave some exposure to some of these older radio programs, the comedy, but also some of the suspense mm-hmm. and the other yeah. classics like that. But one weekend, it was gone. So yeah. unless you have an audience that's, in a sense, trained to appreciate, and like I said, my ex- first exposure was the records, but that was partly due to the monster boom and a lot of these records were using the radio techniques on the LP, like Alfred Hitchcock did one as far as ghost stories, and then there was another one, Famous Monster Speaks, but they were all using the techniques that had been refined during that whole period where you had suspense or lights out or Mm. our American version of The Mysterious Traveler. And the other thing you may get into is the whole thing of radio being used as a platform for something else. You, uh, probably one of the main reasons radio gets is still probably relatively strong for whether it's drama or comedy in England is because it's a cheap way of road testing um, a show. A lot of England's big comedies, sitcoms, sketch shows um, probably run for one or two seasons on the radio to see whether they can build a following on the radio and then they switch it to actually putting it on national television. You know, it's things like if you watch, if anyone's into like Little Britain or League of Gentlemen and things like that, they all started on radio. That was where they were put on, they were recorded live, and then, you know, given six episodes. If they, and it was like, well, that's their pilot. And it's like, they got enough people laughing, they got enough people interested. Next thing, it's commissioned for a TV show. And for our television to do it, you think, considering the millions that they sink and it barely makes six episodes, oh, no advertising revenue. Yeah. Gone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
one thing you haven't mentioned is that while there's the old classic style of radio drama, something that I saw, or I saw, I saw, heard on the radio in the 80s and 90s was very, very small, short radio serials, which were like about five minutes, which were made to be played usually during the commute, like KRQ down in Los Angeles had one called The New Detective, which had a lot of topical humor for LA and various other things, but it was basically this quick little, you know, comedy, you know, Dashiell Hammond type pastiche, but with full sound effects and stuff, and it usually went on about six o'clock every day, and wasn't repeated, you know, okay, you know, try to catch up with whatever the new episode is. And that's not a big radio drama, but it is another format, it is definitely radio drama. Yeah, I think there's sort of like things changing, it's like BMW just commissioned a bunch of um, original um, crime fiction that were all meant to be around 45 minutes long because they said that's the average commute and they were being given as mp3 downloads on the cars and to anybody who wants them and you know so it's, you know maybe it's not going to take the traditional traditional route and if you like to try and snag a different generation with like on radio one which is like the popular music station in england they did um before drastic park came out as a movie they had an audio reading of Jurassic Park that was, like you say, it was 10 minutes every day. And it was read by Bob Peck, who was in the movie. And they did. They found that that worked successfully, that they converted um, Batman's Nightfall into um, a radio serial. And that was really good, because they managed to manage all 90 characters of or Batman foes, and it was it was a tough feat. But then they did it with Spider Man, and they did it with Superman. Um, but they they did it differently to say Radio Four, where you're going to get someone who's going to sit down and listen to two hours of a radio play, whereas they played it as like ten minute bullet points every day for you know two weeks. I think that the old radio format was there was no television. People wanted to sit down in the evening for a few hours, and radio displaced the thing around the old piano or you know the theater and so forth. And right now, I have you know, some friends who listen to books on tape and stuff. That you know, a couple of things with the, with the two of them, and that's similar similar thing. But now, television is getting displaced a little bit also by TiVo, because why, you know, do we have to be here in the evening? We can just TiVo it and watch it later. I mean, I certainly have done that a lot. Now, you mentioned reading, Simon. As I recall, you uh, have several stories on fictionwise.com. Mm -hmm. When we were talking about, uh, you know, the panel uh, a week or two ago, you said that uh, you had found uh, some of the readings rather interesting, uh, the results were kind of uh, a little different than you expected. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that um, someone actually had recorded one of my short stories and it wasn't, I didn't have any involvement in it other than, you know, signing the contract. But, uh, you know, they did whatever they wanted to do with it and produced it as a reading. And it was interesting to listen to it because obviously I have a rhythm to how I expected it to be heard and things like that. And it... And the reader, without obviously without any consultation with me, didn't get any of that. And while it, there's nothing wrong with it, it's that whole thing of like saying, seeing a, a book go to movie and saying, well, it's not the same. It was interesting to see where the written word was different when it was spoken. The guy had different inflections, and it was 
while it was fun to hear it and really different, it was a thing that um, I wanted to go in there and tell them how I wanted it done. And I'm not sure if that's the best thing either. But really, they want me who's used to it as a, as a written word trying to interfere with it because they know what they're trying to do. So, did the different inflections or you know or rhythms change any of the the context or the meaning? For me, it did. I think I, whether other people who who were doing it, I'm not asked enough people to actually see what their impression was. But for me, it did. It sort of like took a little bit of the pace out of it. There was seemed to be it was a read a slightly too fast and some of the things where I want to say it's like going for the rim shot but you wanted there was a certain note you wanted to strike at uh, maybe at the end of a scene or end of a paragraph that I felt that I missed you sort of a ta -da -ta -da -da. yeah, and, yeah. It, and you didn't seem to get that sort of like crisp note to the, the story in places yeah that kind of tonal yeah. you know you know punctuation of ideas and mm -hmm. things I was kind of wondering about uh, about that in particular uh, because uh uh, Larry Santoro, who uh, was uh, going to be on the panel, but you know, the scheduling conflicts kind of, you know, kind of kept him from uh, from joining us. Jamie and I had a chance to talk to him a little briefly, um, and he had worked on a few books on tape. As I recall, Jamie, he seemed he, he was a little frustrated at that, but then this was during the '90s when it was just still fairly a new thing. But there's a big difference for me at least, between books on tape where you have just one person reading the story and a full cast, sound effects, um, dramatization. I think they, they, both have, they both have their place. I don't think one's better than the other. But I think it would be interesting to find out what other people's experiences are with that. Do you find it different? Um, from just the reading and the, the full cast, and how is it different, and how does you know, how does the different experiences affect you? When you have like a reading, some of it um, it's fine on the page because it has to describe um, an action or um, a tone of voice or something like that. And when it's read, you know, you can the reader can put that in, but then has to say it. And you know, if you do. A, say dramatize it you don't necessarily have to and so it makes it a little slicker at times but you know a reading where it's like you know a guy can speak in an angry voice and it's like he said angrily you know it seems like a redundant thing mm -hmm. to have on the book on tape having to say that because you know it should be pretty obvious at that point yeah suddenly you don't need those prompts yeah anymore. you don't need those though i i do think that some you know that some people manage to get away with stuff like that um Harlan Ellison, in particular, just seems to be a real master at reading uh, his own stuff, of course, and um, other people's works as well. Um, he, uh, as I recall, he did some he did some voice work for uh, like uh, an audio uh, adaptation of. Uh, God, I'm trying to remember all of a sudden. Um, oh yeah, that yeah that was definitely him. Actually, the one I was thinking of was um, something you wouldn't really expect to hear a lot of interesting voice work. I, I think it was the transcripts of the court case about the uh, about the Titanic, and I think he did. I think he did one or two of the character voices, and uh, it was nominated for a Grammy, as I recall. I think he actually won something like that for he, he did like a Ben Bova um, young adult book mm -hmm. or something, and he did uh, an audio of that. 
because um, I think I think they're friends or something. And um, but he did that, and it's, it's this typical personality. So he to like blast through all the voices and things that he yeah he sort of like told on that. And it's like about a three hour adaptation, I think. Okay. content of the shows, so if the, you know, it's kind of like tied into the problem of television, if, the, if radio advertising is considered like the low end of advertising, then the radio, in, in order to make sure that the advertising is interesting, real interesting, they seem to want to keep the, the quality of the content of the shows way down, water cooler talk that mm-hmm. is unlistenable. Uh, political propaganda is in its way horrifying but not in a good way <laughs> it's not a lot of horror unless you think about you know, why would I want to buy that it's <laughs> really good comedy yes well produced sort of one of the things I'll just throw in here too I think why radio advertising has the advantage over television in terms of how it I agree with you that a lot of it is a lot better written and a lot more fun. If I remember correctly, the standard spot length for a for radio is sixty seconds, whereas in television it's thirty. So they have twice as long to build a build a story, you know, in that in that advert. But yeah, I also there's not a whole lot of horror going on there except for perhaps some of the political stuff. That, that uh, touches on something that uh, JMB and I had been wondering throughout the convention, though perhaps in a somewhat more biased fashion. For horror fans, audio stuff seem, and radio drama in general still seems kind of exotic. I, I've heard it said that horror is the bastard stepchild of all literature, um, and if that's the case, um, I got a feeling that um, radio horror is the crazy ant you lock in the basement. You know, nobody seems to know what to do with it. They're not sure what to make of it. They want, you know, it's like uh, it, it won't die, it won't go away, and somebody has to take care of it. It's very true. I guess the the question becomes. I mean, obviously, those of those of us here are are here because we we enjoy horror in that form and we see we see the potential in it would the question then be you know how do we get the word out well i think the word is is starting to trickle out a bit more um podcasting has had a lot to do with that it's it's been surprising how many uh, how many podcasts have actually been running old-time radio stuff, um, uh, a lot of The Shadow, which is, isn't exactly horror, but a lot of it's pretty scary. <laughs> How about The Witching Hour? Yes. yes definitely. Um, and uh, one of the oldest you know, radio horror series, The Witch's Tale as well, you could, you could find that online as well. Um, th- there's been a big presence of for fans of old-time radio in news groups, on websites, um, for some time. You know, and in fact, uh, the fact that we're, 
you know, trying to record this right now, give you an idea of, of how ubiquitous podcasting is becoming. All you really need is a halfway decent mic and a computer that won't crash on you right away. And, uh, you're, and you're pretty good to go. I think it's, I just wonder, you know, whether you're, you're moving out of, say, it just seems to be format more than anything, is that there isn't really a venue on radio, but um, I think with probably the, the popularity of books on tape, it provides an avenue for it. But I think the major problem is obviously, you know, you want to listen to an album it's one CD, you want to listen to a book, it ends up being 10 CDs, and even as CDs, that gets quite bulky, and I wonder if it's going to be, come from, you know, things like, you have like audible.com, which is, uh, um, if you like, the book equivalent of iTunes, and even iTunes now is, is selling audiobooks. Yeah. Uh, and it's very easy, then it becomes a download, and you're like carrying around something that size, but you can carry around a 10-hour story, or three radio plays or something like that so it's just the the mode of transport now that's going to provide it because I think then it's Paul Borges then it's something for someone in the gym it's something for them on the, on the car ride opposed to it being uh, a, a radio slot so I think it may be just it's going to be now like with a lot of things you know whether it was going to be iBooks because it was seen as a possibility a few years ago and it seems mm-hmm. that people are not willing to move away from paper I think people are willing to move away from the clunkiness of cassettes or CDs. So whether it be like say podcasts, and you know, whether it's going to become downloads and things like that, you know, whether it's one album, one song, or whether it's one story, it doesn't take up. It takes up the same space. Yeah, with the advent of MP3 players, it's easy to take your whole collection with you wherever yeah. you go. And that's very true. The point about format, because I I bought some of the stuff from let's say Radio Spirits, and it's like you can get the best of suspense, and it's thirty CDs. Mm. Or you could possibly buy it from someone on eBay and get an MP3 and one disc, and you have the complete series. Yeah. What's more convenient? It's like that's enough to uh, push me to go out and get something that will also play MP3 format. Um, so format will also help as far as exposure, because if you don't have the clunkiness to bring it or to let's say get it at a convention like this it's like one disc versus a set of 30. Yeah we definitely had that experience especially um, in in sort of trying to collect more radio horror um, just for ourselves and you know seeing what's been done seeing what's been done in the past um, you know getting a feel for for, uh, what the medium can really do Um, What's the name of that website, OTR Cat? That's where I get a lot of my MP3s, okay. and there are, are a number of, of websites like that who deal in deal in um, old-time radio MP3s. OTRCat.com is, is one of my favorites. That's a fantastic way to be able to get a hold of an, inc- an incredible amount of the old, old stuff in a very portable format. And in addition to size... The nice thing about audio is, you know, unlike unlike video, where I've, I myself have had a hard time really understanding how popular download video downloads are becoming for for a um, a video iPod or something. I can't quite imagine watching TV on you know a screen that's you know this tiny, but audio. That's good marketing. 
Yeah. Yeah, you go from a you everyone wants a flat screen that's sixty inches in the wall, and then you know next thing is I want one that's one and a half inches that I can carry around in my hand. Yeah. And it's like, well, who's the sucker now? <laughs> exactly. But you know, audio, it doesn't have that limitation, which is which is also very nice. Actually, it kind of reminds me of um, the one time I actually tried downloading a video podcast. Um, you know, and, and since it's video, the, the, the files were huge, and even with things like BitTorrent and broadband, it took forever to get. Um, and once I actually watched it, I didn't like it as much as the audio podcast. <laughs> it's like I kept waiting for these guys to cut to this camera or that camera, and I'd taken it for granted that I was doing so much of that in my head. You know, listening to you know, listening to the audio podcasts. You know that I just lost patience for the video. Now, um, actually, this reminds me of something else because the, the program in question was a show called This Week in Tech, which is probably the most popular uh, podcast online. Last I heard, as I recall, uh, the guy doing that, Leo Laporte, has expressed some interest in doing radio drama. That's correct. Uh, I admit I was really excited when I heard that because I thought, you know, this speaks again to how do we get it out there and yeah. how do we get it more popular and get more people listening. If you get, you know, someone who's got that many listeners to his stuff who's interested in hearing more drama, you know, that's another way we can start getting it out there to a to a wider audience and i have my experience has been that anytime i get someone started on audio drama mm-hmm. they they really really enjoy it yeah. I've, I've never you know told somebody you know listen to this and they dislike it and never go back i've not had that happen Actually, we've seen some of this with our own eyes, you know, since we've sort of helped out at live gigs for the Willamette Radio Workshop down in Portland, Oregon. You know, shameless plug, shameless plug. Um, and uh, they've often done live shows, especially for, for Halloween. You know, they would invite families of all ages to come over. Um, they've done adaptations of Frankenstein. 2005, they did uh, their own version of Jekyll and Hyde. We were just amazed at the number of people who would come in. And, they, I mean, they would have ballrooms packed to capacity, people young and old. Um, they would even have goth kids show up who would just kind of like want, or wandering through on their way to something else, would hear what's going on, poke their heads in, and stay for the rest of it. Well, I always wonder if, if, you, if you're trying to attract like a, a new crowd, whether... You know, going back to old classics doesn't help move that forward. You know, would the room get packed if you had, say, say you had, say, Stephen King's um, dramatization of, like, you know, Carrie or something? Would that pull more people in? Because uh, it's it's one of those things that another thing in the UK is like Doctor Who. I know that's not horror, but um, obviously when I went off the television, there was an awful lot of frustrated um, fans of the like going. Yeah. Where am I going to get my fix? So the BBC licensed it out to a company called Big Finish. Yeah. And, you know, they started producing uh, one a month original radio plays. They would contacted the 
various actors who wanted to still keep playing the part on radio. And I'm not sure what their numbers are, but obviously they've managed to keep going for, must be getting close to 10 years now on radio. Uh, sorry, on uh, like CD and cassette. And it makes me wonder if that isn't something that horror radio drama would have to do, is to find something that it could resurrect where it's got an established fan base that it could then build upon. Yeah, as a matter of fact, Big Finish's next project, which they just announced, is Dark Shadows. Really? Oh, is it? Oh, that's right, the, yeah. Uh, the goth horror soap. They're going to be doing original stories, but I understand that they're getting some of the original television cast. Yeah, that's what back. they did with yeah. the Doctor Who one and stuff like that. And they just took, you know, to create a new mythos, if you like, for Doctor Who in different directions. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they could obviously do it. I mean, that's got such, still got such a huge following, you know, that's something that um, I'm sure would pick up a lot of fans. Yeah, get that comment, you know, start out by giving, you know, a classic story that therefore there's a common frame of reference that would help draw people in, maybe so. I'd like to give everybody an opportunity if they have any questions or comments to, you know, to, for, you know, for us, you know, to, to, uh, to speak up now or forever hold your peace. Well, except for him. Except for him. No, yeah. you, know, you know, somebody call security. Um. <laughs> I was just going to piggyback on what you two were already talking about. One of the things, for instance, that Borderlands Books did about a year ago yeah. is that they recreated a radio broadcast and they did an adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's story. So in a sense, you were there as a studio audience and you they told a good story, good adaptation, complete with uh, a host, and then you saw how they were creating the sound effects. Nice. Uh, one of the best things I went to as far as a different type of convention, it was a mystery writers convention, but Simon Brett was the guest of honor. Was this at Left Coast? I believe so. Yeah. And he did a recreation of a, a mystery show. He got the audience to participate just as they would. And once again, a well-done story. You could probably do something like that at a convention and then what you would do to take it to the next step to build the audience is maybe work with one of the college radio stations to actually have it broadcast for that 30 minutes or or hour whatever type of story you're going to create so that you create interest both within the convention and then it's going out to a live audience somewhere yeah, um, I, yeah I, I, I could definitely see that working out nicely. Um, the Willamette Radio Workshop has done a few things like that. Um, we have some friends in Massachusetts uh, who have formed the Post Meridian Radio Players who have done live reenactments of Arch Obler's The Chicken Heart, which, uh, last I heard, has been doing pretty well. I'm trying to remember. He, he said he was going to work on something else, but I can't remember what it was. I can't remember either. If if I know him, he probably wants to do some expansions on um, Nightfall episodes. Um, yeah. This friend of ours named Neil Marsh has um, taken on the task of becoming the uh, Nightfall radio series historian and has created a website commemorating the 25th anniversary of the premiere of the series. I believe it's called Nightfall 25, 
dot com, but I think if you if you did a search on Nightfall twenty five, you'd find it fairly quickly. Anybody else? Okay, well, let's take this opportunity for you know for some for some gratuitous plugs. <laughs> now, um, as I recall, uh, you're on SimonWood.com. Uh, SimonWood.net. .net. Okay. And uh, you are also on FictionWise.com. Yeah. And my third book, Walking Stiffs, came out this weekend. Our series can be found at AfterHell.com. We have a few uh, clips of the show. They're available to, for listening as well as links to go buy the discs. And you can sign up for our podcast. In the, in the recent past, we've um, put up an abridged version of one of the stories on Volume 2, as well as a short uh, promo clip, an audio trailer. Okay, um, Larry Santoro, who is going to be with us, uh, he has a website at LarrySantoro.com, um, and uh, he also um, is a collaborator at FeralFiction.com, um, and you can hear some of his stories on Twilight Tales. They have a podcast of their own. They do readings of various you know, uh, uh, modern horror fiction. Um, TwilightTales.com slash podcast. And um, you know two other two other radio groups that we've collaborated with collaborated with on After Hell um, is the Willamette Radio Workshop. Uh, they, you can find their stuff at RadioWork.com and Dry Smoke and Whispers, which is has some horror elements. It's it's kind of a it's kind of a tongue in cheek science fiction film noir kind of a show. Um, you can you know find some information about them at uh, at uh, drysmoke.com. And um, if uh, nobody else has any questions or anything else, um, we'll just call this the end of the panel. And uh, I'd like to thank you all for uh, coming and uh, sticking with us. Thanks. And that was the panel, minus a few zillion errs and uhs from yours truly. The folks at Transdimensional Media did us a big favor and cleaned up the recording we got from our laptop and a $20 Plantronics mic. Thanks, guys. I'd also like to thank Simon Wood, Larry Santoro, Jamie Lawson, and Chris Roberson for their help on our panel, and also the audience, those who were there in person and those who were there in spirit. Thanks for being there. Larry Santoro can be found online at LarrySantoro.com and FeralFiction.com. You'll find Simon Wood online at simonwood.net and fictionwise.com. Chris Roberson has a website at chrisroberson.net, aptly enough. And Transdimensional Media are online at drysmoke.com. And you can find me and Jamie working feverishly on new episodes. Keep watching afterhell.com for more podcasts, hopefully soon, more postings on the Afterhell blog, and more updates on After Hell Volume 3 as we can get it to you. After Hell Closing Theme by Kurt Sifford. Find him, his music, and more at MuseWorld.com. This is Joe Medina. I'll see you in After Hell.